0: After Donald Trump was elected president, the CIA began briefing him on the threats facing the country and other developments that could affect national security interests. From the outset, there was a problem. Trump, while occasionally polite and willing to listen, was rarely impressed with what his briefers had to tell him. I don't have to be told the same thing in the same words every single day for the next eight years, he said, explaining why he didn't need to get his intelligence briefing every day. He also wasn't terribly interested in getting a written brief either. He doesn't really read anything, his chief CIA briefer explained. At times, during his oral briefing, Trump was, quote, prone to fly off on tangents. There might be eight or nine minutes of real intelligence in an hour's discussion, said the director of national intelligence. While the intelligence community worked with evidence, Trump, the director said, was, quote, fact-free. Evidence doesn't cut it for him. None of this at this point is especially surprising. But what's remarkable about these comments is they don't come from a book by Bob Woodward or any of the other innumerable scribes who have chronicled Trump's presidency. Instead, they come from a new book written by a former CIA inspector general and released by the CIA itself. It's called Getting to Know the President, a history of the agency's efforts to keep our country's chief executives informed. What does it say about the CIA that it would put out a tome that discloses somewhat embarrassing details, even if totally true, about a president it served, complete with quotes from the agency official assigned to brief him? We'll talk to David Priest, a former CIA briefer himself and a scholar on the subject, on this episode of Skullduggery. Hi. Do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God.
1: So help me God. So help me God. So
0: help me God. So help me God. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative
2: Correspondent for Yahoo News.
3: I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
2: And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So uh, it will
0: come as no surprise to us reporters who have—I'm speaking of Clydman here, not you, Victoria—who have dealt with the CIA uh, over the years. CIA folks do at times like to dish but rarely on the record and rarely in a book that is put out or certainly distributed by the CIA. This book by John Helgerson, the former CIA inspector general, is on the CIA website. I got it from a CIA public affairs officer. And, um, yeah, it is pretty, I it is pretty—it struck me as— pretty unusual for them to be making for the CIA publicly on the record to be making disparaging comments about the former chief executive.
3: I mean, I always found it ironic that in some ways, one of the most secretive government agencies actually had like a public affairs office that would talk to reporters and dish as you as you put it. Of course, a lot of it is was just stuff that was in their self interest, not necessarily. <laughs> I'd say uh, all in the of it was of the in, Repu- stuff in the interest in of the republic. But still, they did play they ball, ditched, which was yeah. which was cool. Right. But this was this was different because it's it's a you know essentially a sanctioned public report that you know pretty openly talks about one of the most closely guarded responsibilities that they have, which is to brief the president uh, on the, the presidential daily briefing, the kind of crown jewels of intelligence on a, on a daily basis. And, you know, I think we ought to take a moment here t- to be thankful that uh, they actually are transparent about this, because it is, you know, a lot of this is, you know, looks sort of historical, uh, because, you know, this book is about all these presidents in the past who've been briefed. But, you know, this is Donald Trump. There's a whole chapter on Trump, and we're only talking about, you know, a year since he's left office. And it's actually important. It is important to understand how the president of the United States consumes intelligence and what kind of information he gets, what kind of information he doesn't want to get or she, uh, as the case may be one of these days. And so um, it's kind of fascinating to see them lay it all out there.
2: Yeah, I thought if a like if a book chapter could be a giant eye roll, that's sort of what this would have been. It was like the CIA rolling its eyes at how Donald Trump consumed and <laughs> dealt with uh, intelligence. Yeah. But also to go back to Mike your point about like kind of self-interested dishing, I would say that even this book needs to be read with a a kind of a slightly skeptical view towards the self-interest, because the CIA is clearly trying to promote itself as a kind of bastion of integrity and of consistency with tradition and respect for presidents. So even it has got its, uh, its bias.
0: Yeah. Well, we will discuss all this with David Priest in a moment, but um, we should take note of a number of pretty important news stories that are we're all uh, grappling with at the moment obviously the big one is the new uh, variant and uh, how much of a threat it's going to pose on the uh, covid front but you know the big one uh, on Wednesday as we tape was the supreme court argument on the mississippi case which i got to say i mean in terms of you know momentous things that could affect the real lives of real Americans. It's hard to imagine one that would be more consequential than a ruling that could affect the constitutional right of women to get an abortion.
2: And I want to pause before we talk about it to also note how unprecedented it is for people to be able to listen to a Supreme Court oral argument in real time. Because before COVID, we would have had to have waited 24 hours at least, to get the audio of the oral argument. And in the kind of post-COVID world, there's this new era of semi-transparency from the Supreme Court. And I mentioned that because I got up this morning really early to try to establish my direct line to the Supreme Court's feed of the oral argument because I expected it would crash all of their servers, thinking that this was probably going to be the most real-time listened-to argument that the Supreme Court has ever held. And it did not disappoint as a, a kind of compelling, accessible sort of oral argument. Uh, it wasn't, you know, kind of mired down in minutiae or legal discussion, you know, arcane legal discussions. It was a fulsome and just a, amazingly forthright discussion about Abortion rights and the future legitimacy of the Supreme Court. Yeah, um, that that
0: that last part seems to have been weighing over all of them. The future legitimacy, whatever we do on this case. Well, particularly particularly the,
3: come, liberals, yeah. particularly the liberals. Particularly the liberals. I you know my sense was that the three most conservative justices, Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, and Justice Gorsuch, were not so concerned about the reputation of of the court and whether they'd be viewed as political and they pretty much i think were pretty transparent about what they how they were going to vote in this case which is, say to squarely overturn Roe versus way. Although um, I was and, and struck by, uh, Casey, yeah, by yeah.
0: Thomas's, you know, Thomas goes first. He's now, you know, as the senior member of the court, he gets to ask the first question and he's taking full advantage of that after years of not saying anything, not asking any questions. But I was struck in that early colloquy where he does ask Scott Stewart, his former clerk, who is the Mississippi Solicitor General. He says, if we don't overturn Roe in this ruling, is there some, you know, how would you, what would you advise us to do or how would you advise us to do it? And then Stuart comes back and says something about, you know, maintaining the undue burden standard untethered from any bright line of a viability
3: test. I would submit, Mike, that what he's doing there is he is, making the case that there is no middle uh, middle way, there's no, it is a binary choice here. And, you know, you reaffirm Roe, or you overturn it. And in fact, I think those were pretty much the same words of Alito's, which is that there isn't a, you know, you now have this standard, which was enshrined in Roe, which was, you know, the the viability, bright line 23 or 24 weeks, uh, whatever it is, but if you overturn the Mississippi case, that's gone. And what, what are you left with? Can the Supreme Court establish a new bright line, which is 15 weeks? I don't think they're going to I don't think those justices are going to do that.
2: Yeah. I mean, the clear takeaway from listening to the oral arguments is that the current law And structure regarding how abortion rights are dealt with in the court is gone. Something new is going to emerge after this oral argument. The real question is whether or not it's a fulsome overturning of Roe and Casey or whether or not there's some sort of weird middle ground. And you could basically just hear the liberal members of the bench, particularly Justices Breyer and Sotomayor, almost pleading with their conservative colleagues not to overrule Roe and not to change current law. And then Danny, as you point out, they were the kind of the three clear most conservative members on it who were, you know, ready to go, ready to overturn Roe and Casey. And then it was a kind of a battle for those middle three. And you could listen to, for example, Kavanaugh in particular, sort of rehearse his arguments for why Roe could be overturned and then pivot and rehearse counter arguments for why. um, uh, Yeah. And, and just, yeah,
3: he laid out those the, uh, the
2: options,
3: all of those and all of those decisions yeah. Uh, yeah. that all of those precedents that, that have been yeah. overturned over the years making the point yeah. that yeah. stare decisis, you know, is, yeah. is important, but it's not, right. you know, I, I gotta say all.
0: I was I was surprised by that line uh, of questioning by Kavanaugh, where he just laid out decision after decision that has been overturned by the Supreme Court over the years, usually to advance individual rights, right? Uh, Although the most prominent is, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson overturned by Brown versus Ward. And it sounded like Kavanaugh is preparing to, you know, go there on row, but with the cautionary standard, cautionary note here that the questioning don't doesn't always true, uh, true. presage what they're actually going to write in their opinion. And I still think Kavanaugh is ultimately a split-the-difference guy, and he's he's not going to go all the way with Thomas and Alito. And let's remember, by on. the way, we'll I don't see. know if this
3: is I don't yeah. know if this is relevant at all. But some of us who covered his confirmation hearing might recall that uh, he called Roe settled law. And that's how he won over uh, Susan, Susan Collins, Collins to, yeah. vote yeah. him, to vote for to vote for him. Yeah. So well, he didn't. If he he didn't votes...
0: do call it settled law today. <laughs>
3: did,
0: that's all. He did not. <laughs> okay, so if, he I, did if not. I if
2: I I know we're not in the prediction business, but I'm going to go ahead and right, get out there with a the prediction. I'm predicting a complex and split decision with the three liberal justices kind of fulsomely arguing for Roe to stand, the three conservatives arguing for it to be overturned, and the middle three trying to craft a central ground. So a 3-3-3 decision, or a 4-2-3 decision. (laughs) But I'm not quite sure I see five votes to just, you know, write the sentence, Roe and Casey are overturned. Yeah,
3: last thing I'll say on this, and, you know, not that the justices necessarily read polls, although they probably do. We just just published today, we're recording this podcast on Wednesday, the day of the oral arguments, our latest Yahoo News YouGov poll, which shows that only 24% of Americans are in favor of the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. 60% of Americans support a constitutional right to abortion. Only 24% want the court to over- overturn that's well, pretty president. striking,
2: which may have been the, the basis for Sotomayor's you know, argument right. during the oral argument that it were Roe overturned, it would leave a stench on the court's All reputation. Right. And I should
0: point out that we have scheduled on, for our next uh, pod a conversation with Linda Greenhouse, perhaps, you know, the best known writer about the Supreme Court, having covered it for years from The New York Times. So we will have, to borrow your phrase, um, Victoria, a even more fulsome discussion of the Mississippi case and where the Supreme Court is headed uh, in just a couple days. So stay tuned. Just one more uh, note I just want to, we should bring up before we get to David Priest and President's Daily Brief, a lot of headlines uh, this week about how Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff, is now cooperating with the uh, January 6th committee. I saw our friend Norm Eisen on CNN the other day uh, saying, you you know, Meadows has uh, got the fear of God in him because of the criminal indictment of uh, Steve Bannon for not cooperating. But when you actually read the uh, details of what Meadows has agreed to, it's a lot less than Norm Eisen and the January 6th committee would like. George Terwilliger, somebody we uh, have known for years, who is Meadows' lawyer, he was former deputy attorney general during the Bush administration, said Meadows will continue to work with the select committee to see if we can reach an accommodation that does not require Meadows to waive executive privilege or to forfeit longstanding positions. We appreciate the select committee's openness to receiving voluntary responses on non-privileged topics. So translation, Meadows isn't going to say squat about any of his conversations with Donald Trump, which is, I think, what the committee is most interested in.
3: Although there is one small little piece of evidence that maybe, maybe... Meadows is uh, turning into a hostile witness against Donald Trump, which is mm-hmm. that he has just published a new memoir, yeah. in in which in which he reveals that uh, Donald Trump tested positive for COVID mm-hmm. before the I can't remember now the first it was debate the, the, before the was... first before the first debate
2: and before he even did the the Supreme Court you know kind of the unveiling of Amy Comey Barrett as his nominee. Right.
3: Which means that he could have been the source the of that spreader. super spreader. But it is we need to point out that that was the first test. Then he did a second test in which he tested negative, and then did the debate without revealing that he had tested positive. And then three days later, tested positive. So right. raising and then, the then a few days later,
2: ended up in the hospital. So that's right. I think we can confidently say he was definitely positive.
0: All right, we can confidently say that. I'm not sure we can confidently say that Mark Meadows is going to be a hostile witness to Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. I'll be quite surprised about that.
2: Let's not lose. Let's also not lose sight of the fact that in addition, the January 6th committee is um, considering criminal contempt referrals against a new person, uh, which is Jeffrey Clark, the uh, erstwhile. Attorney General of the United States, who uh, no, no, no,
0: he <laughs> he he never made it. As he, was, he wanted General. to be he the wanted be. to be he the wanted acting be. Attorney General, <laughs> the wannabe. when nobody else at the yeah. Justice Department would support you know Trump's crazed uh, uh, he, was election, cu- uh he was the he was
2: the coup curious, yeah. he was the most senior, most senior, coup curious DOJ. He official. was
3: orchestrating a coup within the Justice Department, <laughs> definitely, so that then he could orchestrate help or uh, help with the, the coup. Uh, to take over, to overturn the election. That's <laughs> what but doing, speaking
0: right? of hostile witnesses to Donald Trump, let's get to the CIA, <laughs> its briefers, <laughs> and the new book with our guest David Priest. So let's uh, let's get to it. All right. We are now joined by David Priest, a uh, former CIA briefer himself. David is also uh, author of two books. One of them, The President's Book of Secrets about briefings that he and others at the CIA have given. And he is also a fellow podcaster, co-host of the new podcast Chatter. David, welcome to Skullduggery.
1: It is a pleasure to join you. Thanks for having me.
0: Quite a uh, fascinating new edition of uh, the CIA's official book on briefing presidents, which includes a um, pretty uh, striking chapter about the experiences that the CIA and the intelligence community had with one Donald Trump uh, when he became president. What did you make of um, the chapter on Trump?
1: Oh, there's a lot in here to dig into, but I'm going to unwrap one thing you said about that, Mike, which is it is not the official CIA history here. Um, It is the work of John Helgerson, who is the former Inspector General, Deputy Director for Intelligence, Director of Congressional Affairs, basically a senior, well-respected person from CIA. But in his retirement, he has worked with the Center for the Study of Intelligence, the CIA's kind of in-house research center and history center Mm. to write this. Now he writes it at the behest of the CIA and it gets blessed by the CIA and put out on the CIA website, but it is explicitly not an official U.S. government record or the history of the CIA. So it gives it more credibility than a whole lot of other sources because he has Mm -hmm. access to material that we don't have because he can still go inside the files that that are classified but it is not formally an official history. So
0: I will say, just for the record, that I got the link for this from the CIA Public Affairs Office. So they were putting this
1: out. Right. There are plenty of sources. um, And actually, it's kind of a nice resource that most people don't know about. If you go to the Center for the Study of Intelligence at the CIA website, there's all kinds of things written by authors at the behest of the Center for the Study of Intelligence that are the author's works, uh, but they're not published by major publishers. They're simply published by the U.S. government printing office, and they're put on there on the website. So lots of things in this category, which are really interesting, take advantage of inside information, but they're not the official statements of the entity themselves. That okay, said, said
0: what would you make of Helgerson's, the chapter on
1: Trump? <laughs> Helgerson's stuff, my God. You know, for years, I have used this as a primary source because he's had the ability to go into the files to find the memos that prepared the briefers to look at the tables of contents of the president's daily brief, the kind of stuff that as a PDB researcher, I would love to see about these still classified documents and the independent research I did on earlier presidencies that Helgerson also writes about, everything checks out. So I take what Helgerson writes to the bank. It's got credibility. And what he writes about Trump is really interesting First, it confirms some things that we've had from reporting that you are very familiar with and others are familiar with from the Trump administration, that Trump did not read his president's daily brief. He would get oral briefings on it, but not every day. And that there were some really quirky, uh, unusual things that happened during those briefings. That that all receives confirmation here from the, the Helgerson material. And there are also some new things, like the fact that Trump did not get briefed on the covert actions that he was inheriting as president until several weeks after he was president, which is quite surprising yeah, to well, me. What
3: did you make of that? that? That was one of the more striking revelations uh, in, in this chapter, because it seems like if you're an incoming president, I mean, th- that's the most, insens- in some ways, the most sensitive intelligence uh, that there is. And it it is the kind of information that could have you know, a real impact on your presidency if a covert action goes wrong. So just from a purely Mm -hmm. prudential point of view, you would think that a president would want to hear that stuff.
1: You would think so. And in fact, there's good reason that they should, because any covert action done by the CIA or more rarely another agency or department, that is the president's covert action program. It is a finding signed by the president. And at least in modern decades, they are very explicitly the president's covert action programs, which meant that at inauguration, they were Donald Trump's covert action programs. And this material makes clear, he did not even know what his own covert action programs were, which is a recipe for disaster. If one of them really goes south and there is some kind of uh, national security crisis that develops where someone's threatening to go to war over some covert action they uncovered, and you as president have no idea what it is, makes it hard to react in real time to that. Thankfully, that did not appear to have happened, but that's not the way the system is supposed to work. That's why we have a transition, and that's why you have a healthy intel policy relationship such that the president, even if the president-elect did not get briefed on covert actions before taking office, he would after.
2: Not to put too fine a point on it, but is it possible that the covert briefings began Shortly after mid-February, when, when uh, General Flynn stopped being the national security advisor?
1: We don't have the exact date. The Helgerson material says that it was several weeks. And as we know, Michael Flynn's tenure as national security was, um, was only a couple of Scaramucci's. So it didn't yeah. really get yeah. to the point <laughs> yeah. of several months. But the fact is, Michael Flynn had already been briefed on all of these covert actions. That's another revelation from this material. The president-elect wasn't briefed on them. But Michael Flynn and Mike Pence were briefed on all of them on December 7th, 2020. They were the first two people briefed on all of these covert actions. So Michael Flynn was already in on all of that information, and there would have been no cause to delay it for any concerns about him. And it's also an oddity that no one in the president's circle pushed him down in his chair and held him down and said, Mr. President, you really need to hear these. This is one of the more important things to do. It definitely appears like nobody did that. Well, That's what I
0: want to I, I want to drill down on the covert action programs because there's a, a rich history uh, on briefings on that, uh, some of which became quite contentious over the years. But before we get there, I, you know, the first thing that struck me about this is you had Ted Gistero, oh. uh, or Gistero or Gistero. How do you pronounce it?
1: Gistero is usually. Um, how we pronounce okay. it? I've heard Gistaro as well, but I'll he go with was,
0: Gistaro. He yeah. was the official CIA briefer for uh, yeah. the president, and he's quoted in here talking about those briefings, including making disparaging comments about Trump, which is not that difficult to do. Saying you know he doesn't read anything, you know he just wanted bullets. And I, you know, what do you what do you make of a CIA briefer? Yeah. publicly commenting on what takes place during these classified briefings it seems to me that's a prescription for uh, you know real problems over the years if this if a president can't trust his cia briefer to keep his mouth shut
1: yeah this has been a line that that briefers have not crossed Regarding classified information, that is, you're not going to find cases where former PDB briefers are out there talking about the classified content of the briefing unless it has been formally declassified. So even in this new material, you don't see Ted or, or Beth Saner who replaced him. You don't see them being quoted talking about the actual assessments or about the sources or the methods or anything like that. When it comes to the process of the briefing, or the the tone of the briefing, or the fact that the president was orally briefed but did not read the book itself, none of that is classified. During the administration itself, some of that is treated as, I would say, sacred, perhaps, Um, certainly something that is protected. But after an administration is over, that's the kind of thing that former briefers in previous editions of this book have <laughs> talked about immediately after. No, to
0: listeners. David has just held up two copies of. Yeah, two I don't of have his the third books. in my hand. All that's right. that's okay. on the
1: bookshelf across from me. All but right. yes, each edition of the book is available in printed copy as well as online, and they they come out pretty quickly after an administration ends to be updated to include information about the transitions and the campaigns for those presidencies that came right before them. And in each case, the briefers and or intelligence leaders, and in some cases, the presidents and other senior officials from the policy side, contribute to these studies to create almost an oral history of what happened during the the previous presidency's transition and the, the election that led up to it. So this is in the pattern of what they have done to talk about the campaign and the transition.
3: And you're saying it it hasn't really had any sort of chilling effect?
1: No. In fact, it's been useful uh, in my interviews with presidents, vice presidents, national security advisors, and others. They often find this kind of thing useful because so many of them come into office and they haven't been deeply steeped in this process of how intelligence informs policy, and they're starting out new. And they kind of like having this quick study of how things have gone before so they can learn from the mistakes of the past and and try not yeah. to repeat Although, them. I
0: mean I, I mean, I read some of the earlier chapters, which I want to go into, in which briefers and CIA directors talked about their briefings of presidents-elect and presidents, but I didn't see anywhere they made disparaging comments about the president's lack of interest in what they had to say.
1: Yeah. And I guess that hinges on your definition of disparagement because there are definitely comments about other presidents. He doesn't that read
0: anything, sounds like disparaging say, yeah, a disparaging comment to me, as true as it is.
1: That Trump himself that was. said, uh, yeah. he made a point during the campaign or the transition, I can't remember yeah. which, of saying he doesn't like to read, especially long things. And if he's going to read, he would prefer bullet points. So it was no mystery that he was not much of a reader. Some of his own staff are out there saying the same things during the administration.
3: Let's back up for a second here, and because I want to ask you some uh, specific questions about how Trump sure. uh, consumed this incredibly important intelligence product, the PD, PDB. But let's start with, just for the benefit of our listeners, just what the PDB is, and then I want to follow up on that.
1: Yeah, the President's Daily Brief, in its simplest definition, is the, the pinnacle of intelligence production for the commander in chief. So all of the collection and all of the analysis that is done across the intelligence community, people determine what does the president need to know on any given day, and that is distilled into the president's daily brief. Traditionally, a printed document for President Obama for a while, it was on a very special iPad instead of ink on paper, and it contains top secret analysis information. It can include sensitive operational data, but it is all focused on what does the president need to know today, either to plan for upcoming meetings with foreign leaders, to anticipate national security crises, or to identify foreign policy opportunities that the president can take advantage of. So
3: specifically tailored for one individual.
1: Absolutely. From the beginning, the idea was this is not going to be a general purpose document that the president might be interested in. It's, you know, what does John F. Kennedy have in terms of his style, and we will adjust the the printing of this to his style in terms of the formatting, in terms of the length of the pieces, the colloquial nature of the words themselves, that is always adjusted for each president. So it's no surprise to me that Donald Trump's PDB looked different than President Obama's did. Well, of course it did. They're they're very very different people just as George W. Bush and Barack Obama were. And every PDB is tailored to the, the sitting president of the United States. But one important point is that the PDB never actually goes to just the president, even though it's called the president's daily brief. It can go to just a handful of people, as some presidents have done, or it can go to many people. And one of the specific revelations in this new material is that we learned definitively that at the end of the Obama administration, one of the versions of the PDB, because they did differentiate them a bit, but one of the versions of the PDB went every day to at least 50 people. And Trump actually cut that back a bit, but it still went to more than 40 people, which is on the historical high end of how many people have access to what is supposed to be a very specialized document.
3: So one thing that was also surprising to me, because I got the sense reading this that, you know, maybe the press caricature it a little bit. Trump's consumption of this intelligence, that everyone latched on to this idea that he just wanted to look at pictures. I think people thought, you know, he's looking at cartoons in there or something like that. And the reality is, based on the Helgerson book, is that he was getting a couple of uh, of lengthy briefings every week. I think they were 60-minute briefings. Now, Obama didn't actually interact with briefers that much, right? He mostly did the reading on his own.
1: He interacted with them in a a different way. So you're right. In the Trump administration, based on this new material, it appears that the briefer would see him two, maybe three times a week early in the presidency, later on down to an average of two per week, and would have to spend some of that time updating the president on what had been in previous editions of the PDB because the president was not reading it. It also implies that nobody was filling the gap, that on those days, it wasn't the national security advisor going in there, as previous advisors have done with presidents, to make sure that they knew what was in the PDB that day. Otherwise, the the briefer wouldn't need to fill them in on all the details. So that's Trump. With Obama, he did read it every day and would talk with his national security team about its implications and sometimes give feedback to the intel community. But several times a week, an intelligence community briefer would come in. But instead of repeating for the president things he had already read, which clearly annoyed him, according to these reports, instead they would walk on some new items like, Mr. President, you know, you read yesterday what we wrote about the developments in Syria. Well, just this morning we got in this new sensitive information and let me update you on that. So it was almost like a a PDB addendum or a PDB plus briefing that the Intel community briefers would do. That will only work If the president has been reading his PDB, and Obama did, and Trump, according to this information, clearly did not.
2: So, you know, one of the things that this latest chapter really highlights is the kind of level of distrust or conflict between this president and the intelligence community. And um, as an initial matter, it really kind of turned on a few very specific issues, but it seemed to then become kind of an endemic level of distrust between the president and the intelligence community and his uh, daily briefer. I'm curious, first of all, whether or not you can contextualize this kind of trust level between presidents and and the intelligence community was Trump amongst the worst, you know, in terms of that. And then, second of all, if you can maybe elaborate on what the possible or probable impact of that lack of trust was in terms of America's national security.
1: Sure. It does appear based on this material that from the Trump side, there was plenty of distrust. And honestly, that's not a revelation from this new material. We knew a lot of that publicly from the things that Trump and the people around him said and did during the campaign and during the uh, transition themselves. So when the president is out there saying, any judgments of the intelligence community about Russian interference are invalid because those are the same people who did Iraq WMD. Well, that was 15 years before and they were literally not the same people making those assessments, but you get the tone. When he compares intelligence officers to Nazis, you kind of get the sense that there's gonna be some trouble from that side of the relationship. And yet what you saw was the intelligence community, instead of using that as an excuse to say, screw it, we're not going to produce a PDB for this guy, they, they went kind of on overdrive to try to say, okay, how can we still get through to him? And what comes through in this material is they adjusted the format of the PDB, they tried to adjust the briefing style, they tried to use topics that the president was most interested in to tee up those briefings and and get him involved in the material through a, a different angle. So the distrust seems to be largely from the president's side. I can't speak to whether the intelligence officers themselves didn't trust the president. That certainly doesn't come out of the material directly. But he certainly was, as Helgerson titles his new chapter, he certainly was a unique customer because there had never been a president who was so... I would say, difficult to brief in the standard way. And that definitely comes through in the material when Jim Clapper gives the quote that the president was fact-free and evidence just didn't matter to him. That that wasn't something that they'd experienced with previous presidents who had received the PDB.
3: But David, in terms of the the tensions, it seemed, there seems to be a distinction between what Trump was doing publicly mm-hmm. and what was happening behind closed yeah. doors when he was getting briefed. Um, definitely. Because I think it sounds like he was generally speaking fairly civil and kind of accommodating to the briefers. And then he would go off and tweet something crazy about the CIA being, you know, a bunch of Nazis or whatever. So is that, was that your perception of it?
1: Yeah, there's there's definitely some interesting parts in this new material that show that there were some positive elements in these briefings. And that is probably evidence that these briefings were better than some people had feared. And Quite honestly, I was one of those people in 2016, among many people who had worked with presidents and intelligence before, who were saying, this is going to be a really rough relationship. And we wouldn't be surprised if the president just said, wait a minute, these are a bunch of people who think they're so smart and they're going to come into my Oval Office every day and tell me they understand things better than I do. I don't want that. And he wouldn't take the briefings at all. Well, guess what? He kept these briefings through most, not all, but through most of his presidency and even complimented his briefers. One of the quotes that comes from this material is from his second briefing during the actual campaign when they get classified briefings. They're not PDB briefings, but they're classified briefings. And he actually told the briefers, he acknowledged that he'd been saying nasty things about <laughs> the intelligence community, but made a point to say that. He was saying that about the IC, the intelligence community, but that it doesn't apply to you. That is to the briefers in the room. So clearly something was working for him.
3: That may have something to do, as you seem to be suggesting before, the skill of the briefers themselves.
1: It may be. It may be. I mean, briefers, there's, there's there's a unique skill that eventually comes with doing enough of these briefings and hopefully learning from the lessons of others, which is you tailor your briefing to the customer, not changing the message. The function of intelligence is to present an objective, timely, and hopefully accurate assessment to help the policymaker of of any level. But as a briefer, the way in which you do that, you have to find a way to get through to the customer. And it sounds like Ted and Beth, the the main presidential briefers here, probably were well-selected because they found a way to keep the president's interest. And that's really hard given everything else we've learned here.
0: Really hard when you're, trying to keep Donald Trump's interest about something that doesn't directly involve his own his welfare, ego. You know, and it's or, funny you should say that, because,
1: yeah. you know, one of the things that is quoted here can be taken two ways. And that is a, another quote from Jim Clapper, who is very aware of what these transition briefings of which the president took, I think it says, 14 different briefings during the transition after the election before Inauguration Day. Uh, Clapper was very aware of what was happening in those briefings. And he said, and you can almost get the exasperation coming through the written word where Clapper's saying, geez, this guy was all over the place. He couldn't stay focused. And the quote is something like, we could only get eight or nine minutes of intelligence into an hour long briefing. Now, on the one hand, for somebody like Clapper, who had worked literally half a century in intelligence, he can say that is not the way intelligence briefings normally go and ain't that a shame when the customer is literally the president of the United States and is that far outside the norm? On the other hand, I can look at it and say, if President Trump, who had been calling intelligence officers Nazis and didn't seem to want anybody to tell him what they thought the truth was, if you've got eight or nine minutes of intelligence through to him in a session, that's pretty damn good. There's some positive element there that some of us just didn't expect.
0: Although it's also true, and this is clear from this chapter, that the relationship between Trump and the intelligence community writ large really goes south after that um, pre-inauguration intelligence briefing about Russia, in which the first part of it goes pretty well, but then all the other briefers, Clapper and company, leave, Comey stays back and presents Trump with the dossier and the allegations about the Mm -hmm. golden showers, which, by the way, we now know from multiple accounts of this that there was quite a bit of debate uh, about whether The FBI should have done that at all, that it would come off as a J. Edgar Hoover-esque kind of thing. Here's what we got on you, by the way, Mr. President. We're not saying it's true. We're not putting it out. But just so you know, should that have been presented to um, the president-elect at that time?
1: I totally understand the logic of presenting it to him and even in the way it was presented. And, And here's why. If the president-elect were to find out that the FBI director, the DNI, the director of national intelligence, the CIA director, and a whole bunch of other people in Washington had this salacious, sensational material and didn't inform him about it, that certainly could feed the impression that they were holding out on him and they were not telling him about this, this stuff that they were keeping to themselves. And you can imagine how he would have interpreted that. Of course, given his personality, briefing it to him, he immediately perceived that, well, you're briefing it to me It's some kind of a shakedown. You're, you're telling me we have this stuff and we're going to hold it over you, which is certainly not the way it was presented, but the way he interpreted it kind of means you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. If, if Comey would not have briefed it in that way, um, there probably would have been some accusation from Trump and his allies later that They were planning on doing something with it. And why would you keep this from the duly elected president of the United States? Okay, former
0: intelligence briefer, what would you have done?
1: In a case like that, I've had similar cases that, of course, are much less salacious because this one is- I was
0: going to say, don't tell. (laughs) Uh,
1: But I've had similar cases where people you're briefing are being talked about in the intelligence. That is, in a hypothetical case, you're picking up a conversation between two foreign leaders, and they're making derogatory comments about a U.S. official that they've just met with. The general rule is you want to inform the U.S. official of that, because that will inform how they interact with those officials and who they trust and who they talk to. But you don't do it in a way that confirms what these people are saying about the customer. You present something like that as neutral, as by the book as possible. This is what is being said. We can't confirm or deny this part of it, but we do know that this is being said. And because it's being said about you, we wanted you to know about it. I have a feeling that's pretty close to what what Comey would have said. He would have put the words together in different order, perhaps. But Trump's perception of this being held over his head seems to say a lot more about him than it does yeah. about the people. Although it's also true
0: to remember that this leaks yeah. you know, pretty quickly. Yeah. Okay. And then the world knows exactly what it is that Comey was um,
1: telling. Well, I got to say, uh, based on what we saw from the entire administration, when just about anything that went on within 20 feet of the president was coming out in the news within hours, um, it's not surprising to me that everything, I shouldn't say everything, that most things that we learned here about those early campaign and transition briefings they were also coming out within hours of the events. Uh, we, we were learning about the interactions between Chris Christie and Mike Flynn, the other two people who attended Trump's uh, campaign intelligence briefings. That was coming out the day of the briefings. And I don't know who was talking about it, but I would put money on the fact that it wasn't the intelligence briefer, that it was somebody named Christie Flynn or an <laughs> advisor to one of the others in the room.
2: Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious because, you know, it, it's pretty clear that the interaction between the the Trump White House and the PDB was fraught for four years, and that there were a lot of adaptations made by the intelligence community in terms of the way it handled, in terms of what information it presented, how it presented the information, and who it presented the information to. Are there any kind of long-term lessons that we need to draw from this, or is it sort of a case of you would just draw a line under the Trump and the PDB, put it in a box, call it that weird four years and just move ahead.
1: Yeah. In the context of the rest of this book, which is about intelligence briefings of presidential candidates and presidents elect, to be honest, he doesn't stick to that. He, he does end up talking about some stuff in the administrations themselves, but it's supposed to be primarily about the, the candidates briefings and the, presidential elect, the president's elect briefings. In the context of all that history in the book from Truman and Eisenhower through to Trump, there actually is a theme that the Trump material supports, which is that each outgoing president has over time learned to help the incoming president get up to speed as quickly as they can, even giving briefings during the campaign, which makes no sense because by definition, one of those people will not be president, but especially during the transition. And on the other side of that, that the intelligence community over time has developed institutions and entire bureaucracies that they reinvent every four years in order to assist this effort and try to become as, as less likely to be perceived as political as possible. That's inherently a good thing. And in fact, that system did work in the Trump case because with all of the things we've talked about and all of the biases and assumptions that Trump brought with him about the intelligence community, He was still taking intelligence briefings for the vast majority of his presidency, something that no one would have expected. Something in there worked for him because he very easily could have said, I don't want to spend a couple hours a week talking to these briefers, getting intelligence told to me like I'm a child because they present it in this objective way. They're not telling me what I want to hear and I don't want that anymore. I can spend more time on Twitter. But he didn't do that until the very end of his presidency. So I think the lesson is there is something about the institution of supporting the president, whoever that is, that is able to weather some unique presidents, whether it's Richard Nixon, who had a bias against the CIA as well, or whether it's Donald Trump, who was unique in even more ways.
2: Except one thing has been broken. One through line has been broken, which is that the president stopped, that the the former president no longer gets any sort of intelligence briefing. Um, So, you know, it has been traditional that you know, ex-presidents continue to get briefings and that was stopped by President Biden. And there was a period of time after January 6th when President Trump also stopped getting PDBs, didn't he?
1: Yeah, Victoria, it's interesting you raised that because I saw separately from the Helgerson material a couple of days ago, somebody raised that point with the Trump post-presidential team and an aide, an unnamed aide to uh, Trump came out and said, no, no, Biden didn't cancel him. Trump decided that he didn't want him first. I'm like, really? This is like saying, you, you can't fire me because I uh, It kind of struck me as odd that that was the case. But yeah, the, the tradition of ex-presidents receiving classified briefings has been always an informal understanding. It's not like the formal transition, which has some aspects of law to it now. It's, it's been a custom and it's been based on the behavior of the ex-presidents in respecting that material. So I'm not surprised that Biden isn't you know, bending over backwards to force Trump to get these briefings, but it also doesn't surprise me that Trump isn't asking for them and running the risk of getting rejected because he seems not to like that kind of thing.
0: He he doesn't like rejection. Um, let's talk about the covert action briefings over the years. And one in particular leapt out at me from the book, and that is 1960, during the presidential election between John Kennedy and Richard Nixon. The CIA briefs Kennedy, Alan Dulles, then the CIA director, about a covert action program, the planning by the CIA, to use Cuban exiles to invade Cuba and overthrow Castro, leading, of course, to the disastrous Bay of Pigs during the first months of Kennedy's assassination. Now, Kennedy, during the campaign, his campaign puts out a statement talking about providing aid to Cuban freedom fighters to overthrow Castro. And Nixon feels like he's in a bind here. Because he knows knows there is a a highly classified covert program to do that, but he can't talk about it. And here's Kennedy, who's gotten something from Dulles about this. It's not clear how much. Basically pushing it. Pushing the idea to make and to so he sounds like the tough anti-communist uh right. cam, you know candidate who's gonna get rid of Castro. This is the root of Nixon's distrust of the CIA, right?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting to me that a lot of assumptions are being made there and they all add up to a a, a horrible outcome, which is Nixon ends up blaming the CIA in part for losing that election to Kennedy based on that episode. When in fact, there is no evidence that Kennedy knew about the details of the operation that eventually became the Bay of Pigs well, disaster. Well, in,
0: in this, in Helgerson's book, he yep. says Alan Dulles in July
1: right.
0: briefs Kennedy about the plans for Cuba. It's unclear he how him much Cuba. he told them. No, he yeah. briefs,
1: if I, I'd have to go back and look at the details. But I, if I, if I remember it correctly, it's Dulles did brief him about Cuba but it's not clear that he briefed him about the details of a U.S. covert action plan that later led to this. So there's, there's a nuance there that could be very important because obviously Cuba is one of the major issues going on in national security. Of course, you're going to brief about the revolution, about Castro, about Russian military advisors, about the threats there, and perhaps even about resistance to Castro. But it's not clear that Dulles then said, oh, and by the way, pulling out a a file from his desk. Here is the secret U.S. covert action plan. That part I I have not seen ever confirmed, but it did lead to the situation regardless. The perception matters because Nixon thought there was something there. He also thought there was something there on the missile gap issue. And all that led to a situation where Nixon finally does get the presidency and comes in in 1969. And instead of using the transition to get up to speed on intelligence, He's refused to even open the PDB that was offered to him during the entire transition. So it does have an effect on what happens when he becomes president. The interesting part about the covert action briefings overall is this material points out Trump didn't take them until several weeks into his administration. And that is clearly not the norm. The presidents elect usually get the briefings on these covert action programs, either at the end of the transition or right when they take office so that they can take action about, do I keep the program? Do I amend it? Do I kill it? And in this case, Trump didn't have the opportunity.
3: Obama got extensive uh, briefings, I think, in a, in a skiff in the federal building in Chicago Right on, on the drone program and- And, and on you know, enhanced interrogation Enhanced as well. interrogation. I think General Hayden uh, briefed him personally. So, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah that's a quite, quite a difference from the Trump era. And honestly, I think, Victoria, your question is applicable here, which is, in what way- is this Trump experience an aberration people will see it as a blip and i think that's the big one is the covert action is it would surprise me if the institutional lessons learned from this don't include we must find a way that a president elect gets briefed on this even if he shows no interest even if he actively says i don't want to hear it at that point you've got to get together with all the people around the president and say we must find a way to brief the president on this because it really matters. Lives could be at stake immediately after the president takes the, the oath of office and we need to make sure we don't put the president in that situation. You
3: know I think David, in, in this context, it bears mentioning that the other elected official in the Trump administration, the vice president, actually was an avid consumer of intelligence. And I think Helgerson says that he at least read the PDB, You know, something like six days a week and had a very close relationship with the briefers, even had them to his home at the end of the administration to sort of celebrate them and to thank them for their service. So at least you had that, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, at least we had that. You know,
1: Mike Pence was <laughs> okay. well briefed. Lucky lucky for America and the world.
0: I just want to uh, circle back on Kennedy and what he was told by sure. Alan Dulles. This okay. is from Helgerson's book, an internal CIA memorandum of November 15th, 1960, discussing an An anticipated post-election briefing mentions the following draft material is much more detailed and operational than that prepared for the candidates in July. Mm -hmm. And this is Helgerson writing. This formulation suggests that the message on Cuba Dulles conveyed in July was at least a bit operational even if not detailed. So, I mean, that supports what I was saying before, which is that he told them something. The question is what exactly he did. And this is fresh in my mind because I happened to watch the other night this deranged new Oliver Stone uh, documentary about the Kennedy assassination trying to sort of... You I'm know, sorry, Mike, um, that's
1: time you're never going to get back.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> let me pair, right. Yeah. Let he's me your still pumping the, with, what was uh, in the jacket. But he makes a lot of, yeah. you know, that the CIA never told Kennedy their real plan, which was at the end of the day, whatever they were planning was never going to work and that it would require U.S. military air support for those uh, anti communist guerrillas the CIA right. was uh, sending. Let me to pair Cuba. what you brought yeah. up
1: about the operational information with uh, something else from this Helgerson book from the Kennedy chapter, which is, uh, in his words, a search of CIA records has failed to confirm that Dulles briefed Kennedy on the status of Cuban covert action planning in either of their two sessions held before the election in 1960. Cuba was mentioned as only one of many trouble spots around the world, suggesting their discussion concerned what was going on in Cuba rather than what the US was doing about it. But after the election, Kennedy was then briefed up fully. I do want to return though, Dan, to Mike Pence, because there is a bit of a mystery here, which is why was Mike Pence, who who had never held a national level position before, who didn't appear to have any particular interest in intelligence, Why was he taking briefings virtually every weekday, including on the day of his son's wedding during the transition? And why did he take briefings so often during the presidency? And to me, this actually fits in with vice presidential history pretty well for two reasons. One is vice presidents, at least since Walter Mondale, have wanted to be prepared to be commander in chief. And if you're Mike Pence and you're having any objective look at a potential Trump presidency, You've got to think that this guy could be impeached and removed or could just get frustrated and say, I'm taking my toys and going home. I'm resigning because these people are nuts and trying to claim victory by quitting the presidency.
3: Or removed through the the 25th Amendment. Or yeah, I mean, Pence (laughs) might have thought.
1: I have a reasonable chance of becoming president here and I want to be prepared because I know I'm not.
3: That's one. That is a f- fascinating and I yeah. think very yeah. plausible theory. And don't know <laughs> I not know
1: unless Pence thought opens of that up his heart and soul now. and tells us because we really can't figure it out from any source other than that. But there is a second explanation and it doesn't require Mike Pence to be looking forward to being president during those four years. The second explanation is uh, more simple, which is the vice president relatively has a lot of time on his hands. <laughs> and vice presidents have always taken more time with their intelligence briefings since the, the Carter administration because they can spend an hour or two every day poring over the intelligence all they have to do officially is preside over the Senate, and most of them don't want to do that on a regular basis. Well, your
3: th- your first theory is better for the movie. It's more yeah. fun. To- <laughs> okay.
2: So I, I want to go back to the one theme that we've been circling, which is, you know, Trump, is it a blip or evidence of a kind of systemic problems? And it's, it's, it's not entirely in the book, but presidents have virtually unfettered or unilateral authority to classify or declassify things and to get people cleared to receive classified information or yeah. not. And that was an issue that was really reared its head a lot during the Trump administration when there was a concern about a lot of people who probably shouldn't have clearance also mm-hmm. being able to read the PDB including Steve Bannon, Michael Flynn, Jared Kushner, all of these people. Is that something that, you know, that president's authority, is that something that needs to be fixed?
1: Well, it has been fixed to, to some degree. There is a footnote of all places in this material that explains that during this most recent election, I don't mean 2020, I mean 2016 when the material was written, that there was a more formal process for allowing cabinet-level designees to start receiving the PDB during the transition as soon as their initial clearances came through. And that had not been the case before. It had been informal that they had allowed some people to do that, to help the president-elect. But traditionally, it was, we will give access to the PDB when these people are confirmed in their positions. But a new institution was developed um, to take the informal understanding that, yeah, some people were going to sneak the PDB to them during the transition anyway. Now that is more formalized. That's probably a good thing because we've had a lot of presidents who have come in from different backgrounds, but a lot of presidents who have come into office who have never had exposure to national level intelligence before. And you can talk here about Reagan. You can talk here about Obama. You can talk here about George W. Bush. You can talk about Trump. Uh, None of them have extensive experience with national level intelligence and making sure that they have people around them who can help them get into the weeds in those few short weeks between the election and inauguration is a good thing for all of us.
0: Last question. You know, we obviously want presidents to get uh, accurate information from the CIA about threats to national security. But the CIA has gotten a lot of stuff wrong over the years and has misbriefed presidents. You know, certainly uh, WMD in Iraq is a classic example, even though that's what the George W. Bush White House wanted to hear. But you can go back over time. They also told Bush that uh, waterboarding and other enhanced interrogation techniques were working and thwarting terrorist plots. A lot of questions uh, you know, about that over the years. Uh, and you go back to the Kennedy-Nixon time we were talking about, where the CIA was pumping the missile gap, something that turned out to be false. Uh, And Kennedy learned, only learned that until after he became president. So how do we fix that?
1: Well, um, there's a presumption that it needs to be fixed. And I'll make the argument that it does not for two reasons, Um, with the caveat, of course, that we want all intelligence to be not only timely and objective, but also accurate. Accuracy is the goal. But if you're in a realm of uncertainty, when you have foreign actors actively deceiving you to make sure you don't get the right answer, to expect 100% accuracy is a false goal and will end up, you're making a whole lot of very generic, very boring assessments that don't actually help the president if your goal is to always be right instead of to always add value and narrow the range of uncertainty. So that's the caveat. But I think overall, there are two interesting things here. One is there's an assumption that because there are some prominent cases of things gone wrong, that means that most assessments are wrong. And we just don't have the data on that across the entire history of modern presidencies. We do, however, now have declassified versions of the top-level intelligence that went to John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and Gerald Ford. The PDBs up through the end of the Ford administration have been declassified. And there are some redactions still, but there's a whole lot of material there So you can actually go onto the websites of the presidential libraries or the CIA. You can find what those presidents saw in the PDB on a particular day. And now we have the benefit of 40 years of hindsight to see were those actually good assessments or not. And I'm gonna say, just based on my casual look at a whole lot of these, you'd be amazed at some of the simple things that they got wrong because they had incomplete collection or because it was such an uncertain situation. Most common in this category, are things like coups. Because sometimes the person who's instigating a coup doesn't even know if they're gonna do it until the day they do it. So it's a hard thing for somebody else to predict it as Brent Scowcroft, a tough customer of intelligence has openly admitted. But it's also amazing how many things they got right based on very limited information. And the fact that the president was receiving some insight that actually would help narrow the range of uncertainty for tough national security decisions based on this little tidbit in the president's daily brief. So I think it's a lot more nuanced than the prominent cases that, that were wrong. And clearly, the intelligence community has taken a lot of pains to learn lessons from those mistakes. But I think there's also a lot of cases of it gone right, and we probably should learn the lessons from that as well.
0: Although I would point out that, you know, there's a lot of uh, in Washington bureaucratic politics that goes into these things. And I was really struck by one passage on the discussion of the missile gap when that's first briefed to Eisenhower. He's dismissive of it, saying, this is the Air Force and the Pentagon pushing for weapons programs. That's why they're saying we're falling behind the Soviets in bombers and missiles. And that is an example. And also you had Alan Dulles, Cold Warrior, you know, ideologically attuned to that. So, I mean, there is a lot of that that goes into what ends up in a PDB. And I
1: will say to broaden that point out and kind of put a bow on the conversation, that points to Dwight Eisenhower versus John Kennedy in one way that is unmistakable, which is Dwight Eisenhower, you know, had saved the the Western civilization with uh, leading the efforts in World War II. He knew intelligence better than any president since George Washington, and he could actually you know, throw the red flag on what the leaders at the Pentagon were saying and doing in a way that the less experienced John Kennedy initially had some trouble doing. What that points to is not that we should always elect a Dwight Eisenhower instead of a John Kennedy. That's not the point. The point is, if American people care about the commander in chief's ability to make those kinds of choices, they should consider that. At the polls, and then they should also be concerned about the advisors around the president. Two things that most American voters honestly don't care about nearly as much as gas prices.
0: Yeah, well, post Trump, they hopefully are caring more. But in any case, uh, David Priest, I want to thank you for a really fascinating discussion. You're welcome. Um, you were the best person we could think of uh, to talk about this. Because so you couldn't um, get
1: Mike Pence. That's what you're saying. <laughs> <Yeah>. Exactly.
0: <laughs> but we'll try. Uh, anyway, thanks. Uh, and uh, thanks for uh,
3: so, Sculldogery sc- listeners should subscribe to Chatter, Chatter, your new podcast, Lawfare podcast on these kinds of issues. Lawfare podcast hosted alternately
1: by Shane Harris of the Washington Post and me, long form conversations about national security with some really interesting people.
3: Great.
0: Terrific. Thank you. Thank you.